0: And you know, this is probably, I say, the first time I've ever done this. I, I asked Pastor Sumter if he had ever done this in Oregon, and I think he had. But uh, I don't think that I've ever brought a family in and then baptized the children later and put the service together the way we did today. So it's been a wonderful thing for me as well. And today what I want to do for our sh- a shorter sermon, but on Genesis seventeen, seven and 8, I want to preach to you a sermon entitled, An Everlasting Covenant. I want to read to you verses 7 and 8 from Genesis 17. God says to Abraham, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. I will give to you and to your descendants after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession and I will be their God this is the word of the Lord Praise now now when we begin looking at a passage like this we have to go back and we have to think about Abra- Abraham Abram as he was then called out of Ur of the Chaldees or Ur of the Chaldeans and he left everything that he knew in order to follow God's call God sweetened the deal by promising to give him a son. God promised to give him a land. And God promised to make him a blessing to all the families of the earth. And all of that happened in Genesis 12. Over and over, God came to Abraham and reiterated these promises. And then in chapter 15, um, I don't have time to go into it all, but there was some fear in Abraham. And God came to him and comforted him. And he gave him the promises again. And what is really cool about this, it says that when he believed God, God imputed it to him as righteousness. But when he believed, that word is amen in the Hebrew. He said amen. He made a public profession of faith. He said amen. He believed God and it was imputed or reckoned to him as righteousness. And then God confirmed the covenant promises to Abraham with a blood covenant. Remember God passed through, uh, split Animals were split in two as God passed through those animals. And we remember that Abraham was asleep when that happened. So he contributed nothing to his, if you will, this covenant. God says, I will keep this covenant upon the pain of death. And that's pointing forward to Jesus Christ. Now, all the time as we read, and we read these Genesis 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, you begin to think, well, this is kind of like, looks kind of like it's everlasting. This looks sort of eternal. And then when you get to Genesis 17, he says, I will establish my covenant for an everlasting covenant. So it is eternal. It is everlasting. He says that I will be a God to you and to your children after you. Earlier in chapter 17, the Lord comes to Abram and he tells him to walk before me and be blameless. So here we have this covenant reiterated, reiterated. We see God moving through these animals in Genesis 15. We hear about the imputation of righteousness. And we come to chapter 17 and there's this new little, new little uh, thing added to it all. A new feature. That was the word I was looking for. A new feature. What's the new feature? We're going to have a covenant sign and that covenant signs will be circumcision. So Abraham, the believer, who's justified by faith in chapter 15, he receives this sign of the covenant in chapter 17, and he's to take and apply that to himself, and then in devotion to God, he is to apply that to his children before they believed. Now, this does not guarantee that his children are going to believe, but he was to bring his sons for the sign of the covenant. He was to bring his children before the Lord with faith in his heart because the Lord said, I will be a God to you, and I will be a God to your children after you. So it's an everlasting covenant. And this covenant between Abraham is it began with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. It's referred to all the way to the end of the Old Testament. And then when you turn into your New Testament, what do you hear Mary, Jesus' mother, say? And what do you hear Zacharias, John the Baptist, say? Father say. Both of them refer to Jesus, the Messiah who is coming, as the final promised seed of Abraham. This covenant continues. He's the final seed. Now, when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, the minister always stands up and he says, this cup is the what? It's the new covenant in my blood. So with Jesus coming, there's a new covenant. It implies there was a an Old Covenant. And that Old Covenant was made, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, with Moses. That's the Mosaic Covenant. Now, with the nation of Israel, there were civil laws. There were ceremonial laws, and there were moral laws. We see that in the book, those five books of the law. When Jesus came on the scene, all the ceremonial laws, and all the sacrifices of blood, and all the ritual cleansing for sin... Those can pass off the scene now because Jesus is the one who fulfills all of the need for blood to be shed. His blood will be the final blood that is shed. The civil laws have served their purpose for the state of Israel, so those laws, except for the equity of them, pass off the scene. They expire, and then we find there's only the moral laws remain. The old covenant is replaced by the new covenant the old mediator is replaced by the new mediator. We find that in this new mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ, He comes with a covenant with even better promises. So what about, though, the Abrahamic covenant? Has the Abrahamic covenant been rendered obsolete? Well, we said it, did, it has not been rendered obsolete because Mary and Zacharias, to just give a few illustrations, say it continues. This covenant, which we have also, which we've called the Abrahamic covenant, can also be called the covenant of grace. Covenant of grace. We can go into that. We won't go into that much, but the covenant of grace is administered in the Old Testament under the Mosaic covenant, and then we come to the New Testament, and it's administered in a different way. But as we come to the New Testament, this is what we see. In Galatians three sixteen, the Apostle Paul writes these words. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He doesn't say, and his seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one and to your seed, that is Christ. So the promised son to Abraham was Isaac, but the final son promised to Abraham is Jesus Christ. The land promised to Abraham was not just a geographical land, but it includes the whole world. Jesus tells his disciples to go into the whole world and make disciples of all the nations of the world. And so the gospel promises they go forth, and Abraham becomes a blessing to all the nations in the world as both the Jews and the Gentiles are brought into the kingdom of God by faith in the final seed of Abraham. On the day of Pentecost, as we said earlier, the Apostle Peter, remember all the people he preached to? He told them that they had, destroyed, they had killed their own Messiah. And the men, they, they were cut to the quick, and they cried out, Men and brethren, what shall we do? And he tells them to repent of their sins and to be baptized in the name of Christ. And then he uses the code words. Listen to the code words. He refers back to Genesis 17. For this promise is for you and for your children. Those are the code words. Now think about it. This is the covenant of grace. Abraham repents of his sin. Abraham puts his faith in, in the promises of God and ultimately we, we see Jesus tell us in John 8 that he saw Jesus from a distance. He's justified and then he receives the sign of the covenant. Then Abraham, the believer, brings his children for the sign of the covenant before they believe. The same covenant remains in force today. Those who same exact promises continue, with one exception. We exchange circumcision, a bloody sacrament, for a bloodless sacrament called baptism. And we could even call baptism a circumcision made in water, a circumcision made without hands. Jesus changes the, circ- the uh, sign in Matthew 28, 19. Now, some of my friends, uh, they, they say to me, Well, Pastor... Bringing children for baptism is an argument from silence. The New Testament at no point tells us to bring our children for baptism. And with this argument, I agree. No place in the New Testament does it tell us to bring our children for the sign of the covenant. But have you ever thought that the argument cuts both directions? In other words, another argument from silence can be made. Add 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 this up. Where in the New Testament does it tell us not to include our children in the covenant community? There's no place. There's no place it tells us to put baptismal waters on them, but there's no place it tells us not to bring them into the covenant community. So, how do we think this through? Well, we think this way. The Abrahamic covenant is an everlasting covenant. How long is Everlasting. I've talked to people who think everlasting means only for a certain period of time, and then it stops. It doesn't stop. And so this is an everlasting covenant. Abraham's, this covenant made with Abraham, with he and his children, this practice continued for up to about 2,000 years, and then we'd find no place in the New Testament where it tells us to stop obeying this commandment. So we just keep obeying this commandment. There's no place it's revoked. So we keep bringing our children into the covenant community and loving them to the Lord Jesus Christ in this community. Every point I'm about to make, every point I'm about to make could be several sermons, okay? But here they are. We see Jesus receiving the children of believers and blessing them in the New Testament. We see any time a lost person puts their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, that they are baptized as well as their Household, We also see the Apostle Paul addressing the children in the church like this. He says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord. So he assumes that they're part of the covenant community. So yes, this is an argument from silence. But the silence is deafening, isn't it? The argument is from silence favors the fact that our little ones are to be brought into this covenant community. Now, Two points, and we'll end. Thank you for bearing with me. We're 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 doing pretty pretty good. Um. Number one, the children of believing parents must believe. Number two, the children of believing parents must be taught. You with me, they must believe, and they must be taught. We said earlier as we were doing talking about baptism. This is a sermon. This water is a sermon. They need to be washed of their sin. The only thing that can wash our children and and us of our sin is the blood of Jesus Christ. So this preaches the need for us to put our trust and faith in Jesus Christ. So if this water doesn't save our children, what's the benefit? Well, it's great in every way. It's great for our children being brought for baptism like the children of Abraham. Can you imagine growing up? I know, but I'm, I'm not thinking about all the dust in the days. But think about walking around with Abraham. Abraham's a guy who's been talking to God. And you are being, young people, children growing up in a Christian home, you are being with imperfect as your parents might be. They are walking around and they are talking to God. They are bringing you to church. They are reading the Bible to you. They are praying with you and over you. This is a wonderful advantage. It's a great advantage to grow up in a Christian home. Think about the opposite. Think about, here. listen, I, I, here's, here we are, we're kids are kids. We got our setup here. This is really kind of pretty and all of that. But outside the door, that's not the kingdom of God outside the door. This is the kingdom of God. This is the visible kingdom of God inside this, in that door. Here we are. And you are in the midst of God's things. You're in the midst of God's word. You're in the midst of hearing the gospel preached to you. This is a wonderful thing. The folks outside, they don't have it. Now, I'm not saying they can't be saved because some of you guys will tell me I got saved because somebody came to me and shared the gospel with me. They're not growing up in a Christian home. It's a great advantage to grow up in a Christian home. It's a great advantage to grow up with, with mamas and daddies who are trying to, to learn how to do the catechism. It's a wonderful thing to have a mom and dad who say, I'm going to get some water and have the preacher pour it on top of your head. It's a wonderful thing. But young people, as wonderful as this is, and it, is as it is, it's just an advantage. Don't put your trust in the advantage don't put your trust in the preacher. Don't put your trust in your mom and daddy's faith. You have to put your trust in Jesus. Second, children of believers, believing parents must be taught. We just did, we just did the fun stuff today. Didn't we? This is the fun stuff. Um, let me tell you the fun stuff when you go deer hunting. If you get, you got to get up. Besides getting out in the tree. Okay, so you get out in the tree and you get your binoculars. And you've got to get really good binoculars for, for, to enjoy hunting. So you sit there for eight hours, maybe ten hours, and you look. You're looking for an ear to move. You're looking for an eye to close. You're looking for a tail to flick. You're looking for anything. All day long you're looking. And if you see something and you pull the trigger or you let an arrow go and you kill an animal, that's when the work starts. With me? That's when you got to go pull him out of the woods. That's when you got to go hang him in a tree. That's when you got to go do all the cutting and all that stuff, right? That's when the work starts. How are our children going to hear the gospel unless our parents devote themselves to the work? This service is wonderful. The water being on these guys' heads, it's wonderful. It's beautiful. But then you got to go home and you got to do the work. Moms and dads are responsible to teach their children. You've got to teach your children to pray and read the Bible to them. You've got to talk to them, as it says in Deuteronomy chapter 6, in the morning and at the noontime and in the evening time. Encourage them to put their faith in Christ. The heaviest responsibility, folks, is on daddy. Now, if, you're the, if the head of the home is a mom, then it, then it falls on the mom. And maybe I would suggest if a mom is in that role, she might en- enlist the help of men in the church. But let's go back to the dad. Men, prophet, priest, and king. Let me tell you what we're real good at, boys. We're real good at being kings, we're real good at telling people what to do in our homes. But you need to remember about Jesus. Remember we we I like I like John thirteen. Jesus gets up from his high his throne, if you will, while he's inaugur he's getting that Lord's Supper set up and all that. He gets up from that position and he does some talking. And some prophesying while he's on his knees. He does some sacrificing and some loving while he's on his knees. And yes, men, you have to rule in your home. And yes, you have to tell kids what to do and what not to do. But you need to do it with on your knees sometimes. Love. Speaking to them, preaching to them the gospel. Rule in your home and talk about Jesus. Rule in your home and talk about sin. Rule in your home and show them their rebellion. Rule in your home and then show them the blood of Jesus cleansing them of their sin. Rule in your home and show them that this this God of yours has claimed them and put His name on them and that He is favorably disposed to them. Tell them to put their faith in Him. Pastor, I don't know anything. <laughs> I, 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 I tell you what, I'll I tell you something to do. Go ask this guy right here what he knew when he was 20, 25 years old. He'll probably tell you he didn't know much. Most of us, when we start out, don't know much. But you know what? We know a whole lot more than our kids, don't we? And so we start learning, we start growing. And we start reading the Bible to them. If moms and dads are the prophets and the priests and the kings in our home, does this guarantee that our children will be saved? Absolutely not. Just as the water cannot save us, all our teaching, all our sacrificing and ruling, it does not guarantee our children's salvation. But know this, our God calls us to place this water on our children. Mm -hmm. And our God promises to be our God and our children's God, and He uses means to bring it about. You will not find anybody saved apart from the Word of God. No one. No one. So you and I, we, we're, here we are, here we are, guys. We're back to diligence, right? Back to putting ourselves in there, back to the work, back to the skin and the deer, and back to doing the work. And the work is making sure we're present. No one will be saved apart from the means of grace. No one. So you and I, parents, we have to be out there working. The church, the children of believers must be taught at home and they must be taught at the church. Congregation, you've been charged this morning to be teachers, to be lovers of our children's soul. They're right there beside you. They're right under your feet. Sometimes you might even step on one. But here you are, the visible kingdom of God, and you must teach them by your purity in your speech. You must teach them by the way you worship. You must teach them by the way you pray. You must teach them by the way you love. And you know what, folks? <laughs> One of these days we're going to have a Sunday school class, and I want you to sign up and teach a Sunday school class so you can love them that way. You pray for us to have a Sunday school class, okay? Because it's coming. Lord willing, little eyes are all around you, watching you, listening to you be examples. The children of believers need to be taught at home and at church. How can our children come to know Jesus Christ uh, unless somebody teaches them? So we must do this with intentionality. We must give ourselves up to this work. And we must pray that the Lord will water the truth that we plant into the souls of our children so that one day we might see them all put their faith and their trust in Jesus Christ and experience the benefits of an everlasting covenant. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you again. Thank you for this congregation and their patience. We've been able to see a beautiful portrait today of the kingdom of God. You've brought us in. You've allowed us to see water poured out. You've told us that water being poured out is preaching a message to us. And, Father, I pray that all of us will put our faith and our trust in what that water preaches. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from our sin. The blood of Jesus Christ unites us to you so that we, we can call you Father. We can call you Abba. And, Lord, you adopt us into your forever family. And you are the one who works in us and makes us new creatures in Christ and those who love you and those who seek to lead holy lives. Lord, we pray as we've gone through all of these parts of the worship today that we could walk away, improve every part of it as we meditate on it as we leave. We'll praise you for it. We've, we thank you for this opportunity again. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.